And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secret and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine may, may I say but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the political podcast from The Scotsman. It's uh, another week of the campaign, although having said that, it's been suspended for a few days due to the death of the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip. Gina, welcome. Morning, Connor. Obviously, that's the big news of the weekend, but politics hasn't stopped in the interim period, really, despite campaigning being suspended. And later on in this episode, we'll hear from... Anna Sawa, the Scottish Labour leader who spoke to us on Thursday last week before the death of Prince Philip and the suspension of campaigning for the Holyrood elections. And he has some interesting stuff to say on Scottish Labour and their issues, if I use that word to be maybe a bit kind. Gina, you, you've got plenty of experience with, with Scottish Labour. I, I think Anas is actually quite open about it um, and, and about Scottish Labour's issues and, and where he sees the the potential for them to grow and develop. What, what's your take on their current situation and do you think there is hope for the future for, for the party? I think this is an incredibly important election for the party. They have obviously suffered since devolution, you know, given the, the irony that they um, brought in the Scottish Parliament in the first place, you know, they've seen their, their vote share decline at every election since. And if an Sarwar can in any way halt that or at least even put on a few percentage points in the other direction, then I think um, they will feel that they've, uh, you know, won something, some kind of uh, minor victory anyway. It's going to be very difficult, you know, because Labour constantly gets squeezed out by the constitutional question, which is a good battlefield for the SNP and the Conservatives and as is said over and over again you can't out union the Tories and you can't out nationalise the nationalists so it's um, nationalise the nationalists I don't, I don't know yeah anyway <laughs> so they've all they have they have suffered and they've they've been squeezed and it's very been very difficult to get uh, much consideration of policy beyond the constitutional question I think Anas Sarwar has been quite clever so far in this campaign in terms of uh, kicking that can down the road, not saying never, not saying it's impossible, but saying, you know, now is the time to focus on COVID recovery. And going by opinion polls in terms of voters' priorities, that does seem to be where voters' minds are as well. Although let's not kid ourselves that the constitution isn't at the back of their minds as, um, for, for many of them as well. So I think if if he's able to 
you know, return the same number of MSPs, even put on one, then they would be doing brilliantly as far as Scottish Labour is concerned. Yeah, they're on about 18%, according to the last Savanta Comrades poll for the Scotsman, which was out last week in both the constituency and the regional list vote, putting that into kind of a pretty blunt instrument of a, of a uniform swing swingometer that puts them at one or two MSPs down on their return in 2016. But given arguably where they were, you know, even 10, 11 weeks ago at the start of the year, under still under Richard Leonard, um, where they were hovering around 15%, 14%, that would probably be considered a success for Scottish Labour. And I think I think that would put them on around 23 MSPs and comfortably in, in third place behind the Scottish Conservatives, assuming their vote stays stays where it is at about 20%. On on the constitution, it's interesting because we had a we had a poll in, in the same one from Savanta Comrades that suggested that independence is one of the top issues of Scots. It was 19% of Scots put, picked it as one of their top three. It's actually the lowest that's been in that series of polls. But I think the panel-based poll last week for the Sunday Times had that figure or a similar figure of what's the biggest issue at this election it was like 49% constitution. COVID was a bit further down. So it's a bit of a mixed message from the voters in terms of the polling, but it's pretty clear that independence and COVID together is probably what this election is being fought on. We could see that. From Scottish Labour's point of view, Gina, do you, do you think they need to be open or more open perhaps to the idea of backing the democratic legitimacy of an in, of a second independence referendum? Uh, Henry McLeish was in the Sunday Mail on, on Sunday you know, suggesting that that's what Anasar and Scottish Labour need to do in order to gain a bit more relevance, because I think his quote was, it'll happen at some point. I think, um, yes, but I don't think that's a, a question that Labour needs to be addressing at the minute. Because, uh, you know, that's something that they can decide come the time. But right now, you know, if they are seriously trying to push uh, the debate onto other issues, then they can't be seen to even be, you know, caught up in that to, to any extent. I think without a doubt, if, if there is a pro-independence majority returned at this election and the government goes uh, looking for a Section 30 order and so on, I think the Labour Party will have to say, OK, another referendum needs to be held. We can't stand in the way of that. And then we'll start campaigning, I would think, quite hard on remaining um, as part of the UK. Because I think for Labour, the argument is not about patriotism or nationalism you know it's a it's a party it's a political party that's based on economics and in tackling poverty and you know what's the best option for the poorest and as far as the Labour Party is concerned you know cutting yourself off from your largest neighbour from your biggest uh, marketplace from a union of which you know Scotland does pretty well as uh, we've seen recently um, from other research that's come out about spending per head of population it would make people poorer, you know. That's a, that is basically, and it would make the poorest even poorer. So that that's where they're coming from. So there, I cannot see them shifting their uh, opposition to uh, independence. But I think, you know, they are Democrats. So I would think ultimately, if there's a pro-independence parliament returned, then ultimately they will have to accept that and 
and, and say, yeah, okay, it, it's time for a for a second independence referendum. But they're not going to say that just now. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I think it's a, it's an uphill struggle even for them after the election. You're, I think you're right. I think I think Anasar has actually been quite clever because he he's done that aspect of the constitutional question quite well. He's just gone, you know where we stand. Let's move on. In a way that perhaps certainly Jeremy Corbyn in terms of UK Labour never really grappled with and Richard Leonard similarly never seemed to have a straight answer to that question. On post-election, that's where I think Anasama might have a bit more of a problem when it comes to Ref 2 because of that, you know, potential, you know, very strong pro-independence majority. And also it's, it's an uphill struggle for the sole fact that the majority of the SNP vote is former Labour voters. And in the end of the, at the end of the day, in order for the Labour to be back in power nationally, and I mean that in terms of the UK, not just in Scotland, they need to win back a significant chunk of that SNP vote. And it's hard to see where that comes from without a, a more positive view on independence, potentially, but potentially a clearer and more positive case for the union is needed. I would agree with the end of your statement there, Connor. Uh, that positive case for the union has not been made, or certainly not been made loudly enough as far as uh, Labour and, and the Conservatives are concerned. I mean, we spoke to Douglas Ross a week before last, who was saying he, he thought more or less, you know, the, the, peop- the, the politicians and the parties that won the referendum in 2014 basically down-tooled after that thinking job was done. And of course, you know, forgetting or deciding for some reason that the SNP wouldn't keep fighting for their residential, which is crazy, you know, because that's that's what they're all about ultimately. So, so as far as the better together parties are concerned, you know, they needed to keep fighting that fight, uh, and they didn't do that. And yes, a more positive case should be made. And I think it's quite interesting because I I think uh, Douglas Ross was saying as well about the vaccine program. I think actually. You know, there are Scots, even those who are probably pro-independence, who who can look at that and say, actually, that's worked well. You know, surprised as they might be about that, given that it's Boris Johnson's government that's, you know, been behind it. And and that is possibly one of the things that might see people, you know, just just move, shift ever so slightly, I think, in in, in their viewpoint towards the union. But yet, you know, Anas has has to be finding that kind of argument constantly if he's going to uh to make any headway come come the inevitable uh fight over independence do you think that he is the right man to take labor forward he's he's obviously been around a bit and labor have had their fair share of leaders since um 2014 for example i mean jim murphy was probably a good example of what not to do so was richard leonard and kezi dugdale had her successes but still you know didn't really make a dent, is and asked the man to bring Scottish Labour back to potentially where they think they should be? It's very difficult to answer that. Um, but I do think, despite the fact that he has been around a while, for a lot of people, this is this will be the first time that they've really heard about him and seen him. And I think it's very interesting that he is absolutely the face of Labour's campaign. You know, you're not really hearing from anybody else, Jackie Bailey, who's his deputy, or, or anyone. It's all about an ass. And understandable, because he only just won the leadership a, a few weeks ago. So could, he could well be. I mean, who knows? Labour ha, ha, have tried so many different, <laughs> different people to try and, um, you know, counter their continual slide in, in Scotland. And 
and as might be the person to do it. He's, he's young, you know, he's, he's full of drive. He, he seems to know where he wants the party to be and where to take the party, where I think maybe in the past with some of the leaders that's not been entirely clear. Um, and, yeah, he's also, I think, being of, you know, Asian ethnicity, that's very different. For, for Labour and also very different for Scottish politics, let's face it. So again, you know, make people look at him twice possibly and make and listen to what he has to say. Um, it's not so easy to write off in the same sense as another white middle-aged man who's 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 a party leader as, you know, Jackson Carlaw maybe found to his cost on the Scottish Conservative side and, and Richard Leonard as well. So yeah, he 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 could do it. I mean, it's one of those sixty-four million dollar questions. It's you know, <laughs> Labour have been searching and searching for the person who could do it. He's also got uh, Westminster experience as well, you know, which could come in handy um, if you think about uh, the people that were in and around the Parliament at the start. You know, twenty-two years ago, there's a lot of Westminster experience there, and it was considered a very serious grown-up Parliament. And now, for many people, it's written off as a, a parliament that's just full of party hacks and, and, and nothing more. So so that might stand him in good stead. We'll just have to wait and see, I guess, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a fascinating election from, from Scottish Labour point of view. I think Anas talks about it in in the interview that we'll hear shortly, but um, I, I know he said it to, uh, has said it to the press in the past as well, that his, his real drive is not to win, he doesn't want to be first minister in the, you know come May the sixth because he knows that's not realistic, but he wants to have Scottish Labour in a position in by twenty twenty six that they can legitimately you know claim to be a, a genuine op- alternative and a credible alternative, which I think is probably where both the Scottish Conservatives and the Scottish Labour have 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 suffered in recent years. Is you know no one really has put forward a credible alternative to the SNP based on anything other than opposition to independence. And it's, it'll be interesting to see if he, if he succeeds with that. Yes, it will. And of course, by uh, the next election, Nicola Sturgeon has said, she's been clear, she's serving this full term if she's returned mm. as First Minister. But within the next uh, four or five years, she will be looking to have some kind of succession plan in place. Um, so it will be fascinating to see who the SNP think is going to come through in that period to fill her shoes and whether or not the public will will think that that person is able to fill her shoes. And if they don't think that, then they will, I think, start looking at the other parties to see who who amongst them is, is, a, is a leader and who they could think would be a potential first minister. And also, I think Anas has been quite smart in, as we say, moving this debate about this election onto COVID recovery territory. And saying, you know, you don't want to go back to the old the arguments of the past. Uh, and and if we get into a parliament where it is those arguments of the past, because it's around independence and what the currency is going to be and whether we'll have the royal family and, you know, will we be in NATO and all those questions which still haven't really been resolved, as far as I can tell from the SNP side of things, will people be prepared to put up with that? You know, and especially if at the same time, there's mass unemployment and, and job losses as, as furlough ends and and the, and the recovery maybe doesn't kick in as quickly as uh, as people would like it to. So I think while there's a, a definite, as the polls show, you know, um, it's a 50-50 split on independence at the minute, 
you know, I don't think it would take much for people to start thinking, actually, you know, the SNP government aren't doing what they said they would do and they are focused on the SN- on independence and we are getting dragged into those and we need to look for something else. So the next parliamentary term, I think, is going to be fascinating. As discussed and as mentioned earlier, it's uh, probably now time to let our listeners uh, hear from Anasawa himself. Hello and welcome to the Steamy, the leader of Scottish Labour, the relatively new leader of Scottish Labour, Anasawa. Anas, uh, thank you for taking out the time of the campaign trail to come and speak to Gina and I today. How are things going? Are you doing well? Great, Connor. It's, it's great to be on, on the Steamy. Um, I think it's, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's going well. I think um, I'm certainly enjoying the campaign. It is a very new experience for me, as you can imagine. Um, a, a pretty surreal experience in some ways because, you know, I've been leader for, for five weeks um, and to go through a, a leadership campaign um, and then straight from leadership campaign into thinking about an election campaign, we only really had four weeks um, of, of the parliament sitting before the, the short campaign um, started and then, you know, only four and a bit weeks till the election. So um, I'm I'm doing lots of running at it and showing lots of energy, um, enjoying it. Um, and, and I think we've got, I think our message is resonating. Um, the challenge for us is to make sure we turn that resonating message into votes come the 6th of May. I was going to ask, and so we we started um, the interview with Douglas um, Ross last week on the you know why should people vote for you? But I'm wondering actually if we start with you and how have you found this campaign maybe more difficult than it would otherwise be by the fact that you had to fight a leadership election you know shortly before it? Have you found that it it's been more difficult to you know get people behind your message and get your message sorted in in enough time? I think it's uh, nothing to compare it to in the sense of like obviously it's the first election um, that I've had as as leader. So in that sense, I've got nothing to to compare it to. It, I think there's I think there's advantages and disadvantages to be honest. I think the I think the the disadvantage obviously being you know I've got to I've got to try and cram a lot more into a ten week period ten weeks if you count from the day I became leader to when we get to the election. And you know three days before I became leader, we were at fourteen percent in the opinion polls. And the debate then was about labour survival, and um, never mind anything else. Um, so, so, so I think we, I think we've we've certainly uh, moved moved quickly and made made good progress in that first five weeks or so. Um, but so, so, so I think that that could be argued about you know whether that's a disadvantage or not. I think the advantage of it though is, um, you know, the message I was using and talking about the issues I cared about in the leadership election have been the same ones that I've been talking about coming through the leadership election into the actual election campaign it's, itself, which is that focus on on national recovery, which is talking about how we do politics differently. We don't we don't have to have the politics of politicians just shouting at each other and fighting with each other and focusing on what divides us all the time rather than actually focusing on what unites us and actually trying to get things done in Scotland. Um, and I think I think that's the bit that I think too many politicians fall into that trap and I point my, I point my finger at myself in that as well is far too often I think in recent times we get caught up in a political bubble and we think the arguments or the fights or the things we're seeing in that bubble matter to the wider public actually it probably switches the wider public off and you know this this is a difficult election for everybody in terms of it being a COVID election a pandemic election and I just think you know, given the fact it's a COVID election, a pandemic election, given the fact that ten thousand of our fellow citizens have have lost their lives, we're not through the virus yet. We still have got lives and livelihoods on the line. We've got a huge job of work to do after the virus hopefully disappears and we come out of lockdown 
to try and get our country back on track, to get it better than what it was pre-COVID levels. So, so yes, get back to pre-COVID, um, but also beyond pre-COVID levels in terms of our economy, our education system, our NHS. I just think given that time of national emergency and national crisis, I think we can do better than some of the politics that people have been projecting in the last few weeks. Honestly, at a time of crisis, do we want to go back to those old arguments, to the egos, to the settling scores? We can't have that kind of circus in this campaign and we can't have that kind of circus in the next parliament. Um, and that's what I'm focused on. I've been, I've been focused on on ideas, uh, on, on positivity, on, on trying to get us through this uh, and trying to focus on what kind of different parliament and different country we can have if we're willing to choose something different. And ask, can I ask you, you've obviously um, tried to steer away from the the old arguments of the past as you put them around the constitution and so on, and, and you've been very clear that as far as you're concerned, there shouldn't even be any discussion about a second independence referendum until after the next full parliamentary term. And you want to focus on, on policy, but you know, with the launch of the, the Alba ca- uh, party and so on, how are you going to cut through? Because that are, that seems to be the only debate in town still. Yeah. So so so, so I'm not saying we we can't talk about the constitution. I'm I'm not saying we shouldn't we can't have a discussion if if that's what people across Scotland want us to talk about. What what I'm saying is we can't allow our election campaign and our parliament to be dominated by by those old arguments. I mean. You mentioned the Alba Party. I actually, I, I think it emphasises the choice. It actually makes it more stark, the choice that we're facing as a country. Seriously, at a time of national emergency and crisis, is that the best we've got to offer people across Scotland is we're going to have a stushy in a fight where people are trying to seek revenge and settle old scores rather than focus about our recovery? I mean, I don't believe it's about a referendum. I don't believe it's about a supermajority. It's about revenge. It's about settling scores. And we can't allow... You know the SNP infighting or the Nicola Sturgeon Alex Salmond psychodrama to to you know to derail an election campaign and derail a parliament. We we live in we're in we're in a really really tough and difficult situation right now as a country, and and that's why I do think there's a sense of people wanting something different across the country. I don't think people want us to be having that obsession all the time about you know referendums or independence. Can you one in four children live in poverty in Scotland? And that figure is going to get even more stark um, as as we come through this pandemic. There are 360,000 of our fellow citizens in Scotland who are stuck in furlough, not knowing if and when they're going to have a job to go back to. And that's not to mention the hundreds of thousands of people that missed out on a cancer screening programme or all those thousands of cancelled operations. Really, with all those worries and all those challenges facing our country, is the best we've got to offer is some kind of fight about a referendum or independence, we, we can do better than that as a country. And that, that's what I'm trying to project in this campaign. Why then do you think that the polls are showing overwhelming support for the SNP? If, if these are the issues that people are interested in tackling, and given the fact the SNP have been in power for 14 years now, and at this point, generally, you know, in, in a, a long life of a government like that, you know, people yep. are getting fed up with them and, and, and want a change. The polls are all suggesting that people are quite happy to stick with the SNP, despite all of those issues that you mentioned. Yeah, so I think it's a combination of reasons, and and we should be we should be upfront and honest about it. it one part is we're we're coming through a national crisis and a, and a pandemic, and I think that has obviously it meant that you know Nicola Sturgeon is, is is out there um, a lot more is is, is fronting the um, the response to COVID. You know, as a country, even though we've been divided for our families and our loved ones, we've actually come together as a country 
like like never before to try and confront and defeat the virus. So it's a I would contest that coming coming through this when we have pulled together as a country. Why do we want to go back to the way it was before of, of fighting with each other again? Let's keep our country together and focus on what unites us as a country, not what divides us. Partly, it's around. Let's be honest. There haven't been effective opposition parties in Scotland for a very long time, um, and I include my own party in that. Opposition parties have not been good enough, um, and and that is that is not helped in terms of where we are um, politically. And, and so, what what I'm saying directly is, let's change the way, let's change the way we do government, but let's also change the way we do opposition. And and given the voting system we have in Scotland, the Parliament was designed to try and encourage different political parties to work together, not just in their own political interests, but in the national interest. And that's why I don't think it's right for Scotland to have a majority for one party, because unfortunately, Nicola Sturgeon has a blind spot when it comes to the Constitution, so she naturally pulled away from recovery to focus on, on a referendum. And on the other side, you've got a main opposition in the Conservatives who have no ideas, who only seem to have one... A band which who in some ways are shouting about independence in a referendum even more than Nicola Sturgeon is because they're, they're only concerned about holding on um, to what they've got uh, and having that fight um, on that on that turf and therefore who loses out as a result? Um, it's the people of Scotland that lose out as a result. So there's a stark choice now in this election campaign is who do you want to be pulling our government and our parliament and the first minister in the right direction? Um, do you want it to be Alex Salmond George Galloway, Douglas Ross, or can we do something different and better? And and I, I would much rather we did something different and better in terms of having an opposition that's going to focus the government and our parliament on national recovery. It's going to focus the government and the parliament on actually focusing on what we can do in Scotland, not what we can't do, and therefore trying to change the country in the process. That's what fundamentally politics is meant to be about. It's meant to be about changing people's lives for the better. And I just think too many of our fellow politicians have lost sight of that. Can I ask, um, Alice, on your own party's failures? I mean, when devolution was brought in, I'll admit I was young at the time, but um, how old were you, Connor, at the time? Let's let's uh, have that. I was, I, I was five. In nineteen ninety nine, you were five. <laughs> I was five years old. In fact, I'd have been. I'd, I was like to think I'm one of the young ones. You're making me feel old. I was Imagine actually how I feel. four because I'm born in November. You're young, but... Gina. Still, you're looking young and youthful, Gina. <laughs> You're aging gracefully. <laughs> Going back to then, obviously, in 1999, Scottish Labour were the main dominating force in Scotland, which is a position you guys held until 2007. Since 2007, what is what has been the biggest mistake made by your party that has caused the continued decline and a failure to, to, to pull... Pull the country back to those more domestic arguments. And um, how long have we got on the show? I mean, I, I wish I could say there was just one mistake that we'd made, perhaps on that journey. I think I think we've got to be honest. There have been a series of, of, of errors and mistakes over the last twenty years since the start of devolution that have got us to the place we're in just now. We have only ever decreased our share of the vote from one um, Hollywood election to another. So that shows you there's been a problem right from the outset of devolution up until now. The challenge has been, in recent times, we've accelerated that decline rather than slowed that decline down. And I, you know, the task I have is not just is not just a task over the next four and a half weeks. It's actually a task over the next, you know, five years. Is 
to not just stop the decline, but actually go against the, that wave and actually start to rebuild the Labour Party again. So to answer directly, it's one part is we 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 we, we championed devolution. We didn't really de- we didn't devolve ourselves um, at the same time. It, we we also had you know the final days of a of a thirteen year UK Labour government, um, and at the same time we were you know having challenges here in Scotland. So I think the tail end of a Labour government and you know, the, the loss of popularity over that period, um, I think, made, made life more difficult for us in, in Scotland as well. Um, you could look at perhaps we were we were too worried about going it alone, perhaps as a minority government, um, and, and we paid we perhaps paid the price of, on some of that um, along the way. Um, I, I think we didn't really we didn't really get comfortable, I think, with with Scottish identity and, and pride in Scotland in terms of how we spoke and how we 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 delivered our ideas and and projected ourselves as a um, as a political party and then and then we we had a period where we just looked like we were talking to ourselves uh, and talking about conflicts within and talking about our past and our history rather than talking about the country and talking about the future um, and and that's probably me missed out another loads I mean another thing of course with that is the referendum the aftermath of the referendum the fact that the the party's never naturally been comfortable talking about that frame. Of, of you know unionism and nationalism, and um, all, all of that I think has had um, its own challenge um, over the over the period, um, and and that's why what I'm determined to do in terms of with the Labour Party, and, and this is this is going to emphasize a longer term project now, that, that might not be helpful when it comes to the election campaign in terms of what we do over the next four and a bit weeks, but but the, but the much more longer term challenge which I'm de- determined to confront is how do we look. And sound like, you know, the Labour Party of the future. How do we get relevance again to people's lives um, in a way that people don't just think of the Labour Party as something that you know their parents or their grandparents used to have an affinity to? Um, and and I, th- I think I've started some of that work in terms of getting us back on the pitch, in terms of I think stemming the tide, in terms of getting us relevant again, in terms of talking about those priorities that go beyond, for me, party politics, about changing the way we do our politics. Um, you know, I having a pride in Scotland. I mean, I, I'm so proud of Scotland. I, I love Scotland. I and you know, I've talked a bit about my own identity within that as well. Um, that that's not me to trying to compliment myself. That's that's me saying something great about Scotland. The, the fact that someone like me, from my background, with my heritage, can can be a leader of a mainstream political party says something phenomenal about Scotland and actually something phenomenal about the Labour Party. It's about how we harness that. <coughs> That energy and that outward look and that internationalism, I think, is is such a huge opportunity for us. But we've got to change the frame of the debate, um, and we're attempting to do that over the next four and a bit weeks. But we've got to do that over the next term of the parliament as well. Can I ask, just picking up um, something you said there around identity? How worried are you that politics in Scotland um, and perhaps perhaps across the UK as a whole seems to be going even further into this into identity and how people identify and who they identify with and um you know George Galloway launched his manifesto yep. yesterday which was a, an event in itself but the you know he said he's he found it frustrating that politics in Scotland was no longer about left and right you know that we've been dragged into this um identity about whether you're a nationalist or a unionist and you just said there that you know labor has that's never really kind of sat comfortably with the Labour Party because the Labour Party is not about those kind of arguments. It's always about the economic arguments. 
I mean, or do you think that's just inevitable? And that's why now, you know, what you're saying there suggests that Labour is accepting that identity politics is important and you have to reframe your arguments around that. What what I'm meaning by when I talk about, you know, my own identity and, and Scotland is I think you, you, we've got to strike the right balance about pride and who we are and what we are have achieved as a nation and what we can achieve, but with also being realistic about the challenges that confront us as a country. And actually, this is not something that's just isolated to Scotland. I think it's important to stress that. I think if you look at politics in Scotland, if you look at politics across the UK, I think if you look at politics even in the US um, and across Europe and even um, <clears throat> in, in, in you know, other, other continents of the world, identity politics has actually taken a, a big grip you know, there is us versus them narratives. Um, there is othering of, uh, you know, whole communities um, where where people, you know, if you look at the US in particular or if you look at, you know, other parts of the world where, you know, there is, there is othering happening in order for a majority to, you know, consume both economic and, and democratic power. So, so identity politics is not something that's unique to just Scotland or the UK. I, I, I suppose what, what I'm saying is, there is a different way of, of doing this. If we continue down the route of, of, you know, that hard identity politics, we've seen it in terms of Brexit and the Tories. We've seen it in terms of Donald Trump in the US. You've seen it a little bit in terms of what, what happens in, uh, in Scotland is it takes us down a dangerous path. And I, I would much rather that we focused on what united us as a country rather than what divides us. And, and this is something that, that I have a personal passion in because I, I talk about these issues when it comes to prejudice and hate. Um, and I talk about this in terms of the way we do our politics. We have to find a way, a different way, a better way of doing our politics because we cannot pretend that the way we conduct ourselves, the way we behave, the language we use doesn't actually have impacts on what happens in individual communities and what happens on social media feeds across the country. We can't separate ourselves from how we conduct our politics with how people behave across the country. And we can have a civilised debate. We can have a politics that is, yes, we can disagree with each other, but it doesn't mean we have to dislike each other at the same time. But, fun <coughs> but fundamentally, we can have a politics that actually gets things done. And I think for too long in Scotland, we've had you know, too many conversations about what we can't do. Let's talk about what we can do. Because here we talk about what we can do and we try and build bridges and we try and build relationships and we get things done. That's what's going to make a difference for future generations. That's what's going to build a better and fairer and stronger Scotland coming through this pandemic. And that's what I'm contesting when I talk about, you know, a new kind of politics and choosing something different. Can I put it to you, Anas, that potentially Scottish Labour has become, you know, ended up in the position that it is due to a failure to deal with what Jean is talking about in that, and even what you mentioned in the sense of failing to actually recognise that politics has changed and relying on the old debates of left and right. And that, you know, I think you look at England, for example, and politics is now very firmly divided along the EU referendum voting lines. And politics in Scotland is, is um, divided along the lines of independence. And Labour as a whole has failed to really present a coherent argument for why their view out with of these issues is more important than those constitutional issues. Look, look, I, I, we've got to confront that challenge. And what, what I'm not willing to do and what I, what I won't do because it's, it's, not, it's not who I am as a person, it's not, it's not what drives me um, in terms of my politics, um, is I, I don't get up in bed in the morning thinking about identity and thinking about how we 
how what that means for how we are with each other. You know, I, I want to. I, I naturally want to pull communities together and pull the country together to get things done. Um, and I demonstrated that in terms of my work around the cross-party group on tackling Islamophobia, you know, bringing together diverse communities from, from all different backgrounds to focus on actually what we have in common. And for too often, our politics is gripped by what, you know, if we disagree on one thing, it means we can't work together on the 99 things we agree on. And we would have a much more grown-up kind of politics through this. We have a much more grown-up style of parliament through this. And I want us to have a parliament where, see if we agree on 99 things, but we disagree on one, that's fine. We'll part the one thing we disagree on, but we'll still make progress and, and make and do good on the 99 things we agree on. And and that's what our challenge is. Um, we have got to try and change the, the frame of our politics. We've got to try and change the frame. And this, again, is not isolated to Scotland. If you can look at the other side of the Atlantic. If, you, if you'd asked people in the US a year ago, they would have said to you, a Donald Trump win is inevitable. The division is inevitable. Nothing's going to change. America is only going down one route, and that's the route of isolationism and, and, and American nationalism, where we're going to we're going to you know focus on difference rather than what unites us. But actually, a different kind of politics is possible, and that's a different kind of politics that is about empathy. It's about unity. It's about hope. It's about trying to find common cause and things we can agree on, and then conf- and then confront and challenge things that we disagree on in a way that is decent and respectable. I think we can have that kind of politics here in the UK and we can have that kind of politics here in Scotland again. Is it going to happen in the next four weeks? Maybe not. But I think that's the kind of future we need to build because we have to take on the forces of division. We have to take on that kind of narrative. If we are going to come through this as a fairer and stronger nation, it's more united as a result. And as I, I interviewed uh, Willie Rennie, leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats for the, the Scotsman, um, in fact, for the Scotland on Sunday uh, last week. In similar terms as you, I suppose, about finding consensus and working together and a more partnership approach within the parliament. Um, he said some of that had been happening throughout the COVID pandemic, that there had been regular meetings between him and you know, uh, government ministers to tackle various issues that came up. Um, I don't know if that was happening um, with, with the Labour uh, MSPs as well, but he said ultimately it stopped, it ended because independence was suddenly back on the table. And that that one thing is the one thing that you talk about that is, you know, that, that you don't agree on, but it's such a huge thing. It kind yep. of transcends everything else. And, you know, and he said, so we, for, for them anyway, they had that, that kind of working ended as a result of that. I mean, where, I mean, where do you draw the line in terms of being consensual and, and, and working together? Because I mean, are we? Well, let's accept that the SNP are likely to win this election. You know, I mean, what what does Labour do if there's still that threat of an independence referendum hanging in the air? Well, I mean, you, you saw it last week, where in the TV debate, you saw it last week in the TV debate, where the two final questions were on climate change and challenging prejudice and hate, and you know, on both questions, you know, other others, I won't name names, but others. Um, couldn't couldn't find the ways of finding common cause on those issues, and and honestly, is that is that as good as it gets? I, I honestly think there are things that we can find common cause on if we do care about creating a better and fairer society. So, so I'll, so I'll use you know, today for example, we, we launched our our climate change proposals. That's that's one example. Climate change doesn't recognise borders, so the idea that you can have isolationist politics and confront climate change at the same time is just not going to happen. 
Climate change requires cooperation, cooperation within your nation, cooperation with across the UK, international cooperation, if we are going to challenge and confront climate change. Another example is around prejudice and hate. Um, so, you know, I, I have spoken to too many communities who uh, fall into the trap of thinking that their individual fights have got to be left to individual communities. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. If I'm going to defeat racism and Islamophobia, I can't do it by just talking to and working with and engaging with, uh, you know, fellow um, South Asian people or, 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 or Muslims. It has to be a partnership that we have with people across all different faiths and non-faiths so we confront that fight together. So there are issues where we can find common cause and not have our politics paralysed by one question. I don't support independence. I don't support a referendum. Um, I can't be any clearer on that. But, but because I don't support independence and I don't support an, a, a referendum, that doesn't mean I can't work with other political parties to challenge child poverty. It doesn't mean I can't work with other political parties to get more investment in our NHS. It doesn't mean I can't work with other political parties you know, to confront the SQA scandal, for example. And again, I'll give you some practical examples. My party worked with the SNP around the period poverty bill and protection of retail workers bill. We worked with the Liberal Democrats around getting greater funding for mental health services. We worked with the Greens around the SQA exams fiasco. We worked with the with the Tories around the Offensive Behaviour of Football Act. I worked with all the other political parties around challenging prejudice and hate. Where we can work together, we should seek to do so. But that doesn't mean we can't still hold strong views in the bits that we disagree. But that doesn't mean it should paralyse our politics and not get things done in Scotland, especially at a time of a pandemic. So, so Willie's right. Willie gives the example of... Um, you know, through the pandemic, there was there were instances of us working together. And I think there were there were good points, and there were obviously some low points through that as well. But on the good points, there were moments when our when our parliament looked like it was pulling together to confront the virus. And I know directly from my own conversations I was having with the cabinet secretary, Jean uh, Freeman, around disaggregated data, around impact on individual communities, around you know p greater PPE. Having that open dialogue and discussion is a strength. It doesn't mean we're weak. It's a strength. So yes, believe what you believe. Yes, fight passionately for what you believe in or against something if you don't believe in it at all. But that should not stop us working on the things we agree on because we have a we have a we have a we have a challenge in front of us. We have a massive challenging that I think too many politicians underestimate coming through this pandemic, who think we can just go back to politics as usual or the old style of doing things. It ain't gonna work. And the people that pay the price are people across our country are worried about their job, worried about the children's education, worried about the children's mental health, waiting for that cancelled operation. They're the people that will pay the price and they will never forgive us. And when I say us, I mean as a collective. They will never forgive a parliament that's focused on their own personal interest, not on things that matter to people across the country. One of the things that Douglas Ross regularly says, it's a, it's a re recurring um, theme of the Conservative campaign this, this time around, is that you know, Labour are too weak to stand up to the SNP. And what you've just said... <laughs> I, mean, I find that funny. I find that funny. It's, part, it's partly funny because people can call me lots of things, they can't call me weak. Um, and I, I would I would contest about who's looking what way in this election campaign. Um, it, is, it is not a weakness to say, I oppose independence, I do not support a referendum, but if... If we can get things done in Scotland, we should get things done in Scotland. That's not a weakness. That's a strength. People need to have a bit of confidence in themselves. Maybe he's not confident enough in himself. I don't know. Someone should talk to him. 
can I ask as a follow up then? You know, given given that independence is is currently the dividing line, what your solution to the constitutional question is? M- many in your party, you know, call for a federalist solution to the to the constitutional debate. You know, Scottish Labour were one of the architects of devolution as we know it now. What's your solution for solving the problem, which clearly exists, which is that almost half of the population believe that the current settlement doesn't work? Yeah, so so it's a combination of things, Con. I mean, one is there are too many people, both within my own political party and also out with my political party, that think there is some kind of devolution quick fix or game that can stop independence or stop a referendum. Let's take it back to principles. I'm a devolutionist. I, I believe in devolution. And if you believe in devolution and you think there are more things that we can do in Scotland if we had the powers to do them, then that should not be conditional on a referendum. And that should not be conditional as some kind of fix if you think it's about trying to stop independence. Uh, it's If we want a recovery, so, I, so I, I believe the next parliament needs to focus on recovery. And a big part of recovery is making sure we have a recovery that works for everyone. And when I talk about recovery that works for everyone, I'm not just meaning in terms of our demographics around around gender. There are clear gender inequalities, um, even pre-pandemic, and actually will be exacerbated by the pandemic. There are clearly inequalities around uh, ethnicity, and um, clearly inequalities around around class um, that that were problems pre-pandemic and have been exacerbated by the pandemic. But there are also deep inequalities and about having a recovery that works for everyone that are geographic. So if we talk about a recovery that works for everyone, that's got to be a recovery that is west, east, north, south. It's got to be urban, rural, coastal, island communities as well. And this sense, I think, that people have of a disconnect is not unique in Scotland. It's right across the UK. I think if you look at Andy Burnham, for example, in Liverpool, sorry, in Manchester, if you look at Steve Rotherman in Liverpool, if you look at what Sadiq Khan is saying in London, or you look at what Martin Drakeford is saying in Wales, and actually not just Labour politicians, probably politicians of other political parties in those uh, nations and regions as well. There's a clear disconnect that we also feel here, I'm, me sitting in Glasgow and Gina at least sitting in Edinburgh. I'm not sure where you're sitting, Connor, if it's Edinburgh. It's it's great, so you guys sitting in, in Edinburgh. There is clearly a disconnect. And if we are going to have a recovery that works for everyone, we've got to push power out from our parliaments and into the nations and regions. And that includes pushing power out from Holyrood into our local communities as well. So so I, I'm in favour of greater devolution if it helps with our recovery. There are particular powers, for example, that I think need to come out of Holyrood around economic levers. So we give much, much more scope to people in different parts of Scotland to be able to focus not just the decisions they make, but actually resources towards the sectors that are going to make a big difference to them locally. So we can train people locally, they can study locally, they can live locally, they can work locally, they can have thriving public services locally, they can retire locally. Yep. These are all things that I think need to have an open conversation, discussion and deliver on. So so I, I'm not afraid to have that debate about devolution and greater powers. Let's just not make it conditional on going back to the old fights and the old arguments because that distracts away from the recovery. This idea that a referendum or independence is a light switch moment that, you know, it doesn't take up anybody's time. It doesn't take up anybody's energy. It doesn't take up anybody's distraction or focus. And we can just get it done and do recovery at the same time. It just isn't credible. It just isn't credible. We need to pull people together around the recovery and and re- recognise the scale of the challenges that faces us through this next parliament. And if devolving more powers it helps to achieve that, we should make it happen without it being conditional on those old arguments. Would you be in favour then of, you know, you mentioned Andy Burnham, 
and and colleagues like that. Would you be in favour of metropolitan mayors who maybe take over a certain level of the powers that are currently in Holyrood but could be devolved to councils and and I'm not I'm not sure people in Scotland will feel as if they need more elected members. Um, so I, I think I think we've just got to be careful about it. Doesn't just sound like politicians saying let's have more elected politicians. Um, so do I like the, do I like the idea of us having regional uh, hubs that help focus around economic uh, development, around you know making sure we have thriving public services, we have greater connectivity? Uh, yes, and I think we've we've saw, we've seen that in terms of the wider uh, Glasgow region, for example, where we have you know the Clyde Valley partnerships between. Um, local authorities in the west of Scotland. There are no reason why we should not be creating big regional hubs across the country that we can focus investment and powers to so we can have these regional hubs across the country, whether that is backed up then by some different sort of um, elected accountability. I, I think that's probably a debate for, for, for another time. Um, I'm certainly not advocating in this election campaign that we create more elected politicians. On that, and as can I ask you, um, there's obviously been a lot of discussion about the way the parliament works over the last um, few months, especially around the, the committee that mm-hmm. was investigating sexual harassment complaints and whether or not the, the parliament has enough powers to, to hold the government to account and if it has enough powers of scrutiny. You know, you talk about not wanting more ele- elected politicians, but I mean, is there an argument, do you think, for a second chamber or how does the parliament get better at um, scrutinising legislation and, you know, even once legislation has been passed, doing more post-legislative scrutiny. As you may know, I was the, I, I chaired for a short period the post-legislative scrutiny committee as well as the, the audit committee whilst my, my colleague Jenny Mara was on uh, maternity leave. Um, I, I think there is a, a massive role for post-legislative scrutiny. Um, but I think there's a way we can do it by actually strengthening the parliament. Um, and, you know, you, you referenced the challenges we face in the parliament over the last couple of months. I mean, it, I think anyone looking from outside inwards would, would have would have really questioned the very ethos and the principles in which the parliament was created with some of that. Um, and in all of these issues, I, I take out party and personality um, because it's about the integrity of our parliament. It's about the integrity of the office of first minister, for example. It's about the integrity of government um, and also the principles that, of a thriving democracy, and that includes the committee process. So I've, I've published already a series of proposals about how we clean up Hollywood and get it functioning better. Um, part of that, I think, is beefing up the role of committees um, and giving them greater powers in terms of, one, scrutiny of legislation, um, secondly, giving them the ability to compel witnesses to come and give evidence to that committee, trying to move away from the the whip system that we sadly have too much of in our, in our committees where they often become party political rather than actually um, looking at the detail um, of, of, the, of the credible information that's in, in front of them. Um, it's about perhaps looking at um, elected conveners uh, for the committees in order to help empower those committees a bit more. Um, I think there's there's definitely a, a, an unquestionable um, argument now around separating the role of the Lord Advocate. Um, I don't think it's credible to have the same individual being the chief legal advisor to the government sitting around the cabinet table, but also being the chief prosecutor in the country. I think that is that's clearly shown that that's not a model that is that is credible or going to work. So I, I think there are there are all these issues that we can do and actions we can take to clean up Holyrood, to strengthen Holyrood, to strengthen that that accountability and transparency without, I think, talking about another elected parliament or elected chamber 
which again, I'm, I'm not sure people in Scotland really want any more elected politicians. Going going back to you know poll ratings and things like that, um, what at the minute you're one of the more popular leaders, despite only having been in place for a short period of time. Um, but Scottish Labour is still struggling to make that breakthrough um, in in the polls. What happens if you return fewer MSPs this year and this election for you and the party going forward? Look, I, I've made it very clear right from the outset that um, we have a mountain to climb, um, that I wasn't naive about the scale of the challenge. Um, I was very open and honest during the, both the leadership election and since that for me, this was a four-phase um, approach, which was around survival, relevance, credible opposition, credible alternative. I'm still confident we can complete three of those four phases over the course of this um, election campaign. Um, as I said before, we were at 14% of the polls just three days before I became leader. Um, so I'm, I'm running at this. I, I recognise we have a huge job of work to do to win back the trust of people across Scotland. And I made a promise on day one of this campaign. Well, I did two things. One, I made an apology. The second, I made a promise. First apology I gave was recognising that the Labour Party had not been good enough. Uh, and I'm sorry we weren't good enough. Uh, and the second promise I made was that I'm going to work day and night to give the people of Scotland the Labour Party they deserve. And and, and I hope that people can see that I'm making progress uh, in that in terms of getting the Labour Party back on the pitch and giving them uh, the Labour Party they deserve. Uh, and obviously, I'm, I'm uh, punting myself for as many votes across the country as possible and as many seats um, and this changing of the Labour Party but more importantly this changing of our parliament in Scotland is for me a longer term project and I'm absolutely determined to do it um, and at the end of that um, I hope we can be in a position where we can have a Labour government and a Labour First Minister but that's a big job, a big change uh, and I'm determined to do it and I'm putting all my energy and all my efforts uh, into it to make it happen because I, fundamentally I believe it, I care about it I love the Labour Party, I, I love Scotland I, I, what makes it easier for me in this election campaign is all the talking I'm doing about focusing on what unites us and not what divides us and changing the way we do our politics, changing, the, making sure we can actually change Scotland, not focus on what we can't do rather than what we can do. I fundamentally believe it. Um, so if you believe in something, it's much easier to go out there and argue for it uh, and enjoy an election campaign at the same time. And that's exactly what I'm going to continue doing. So thank you very much, Anas, for joining us on the Steamy. Best of luck with your campaign and wishing you all the best over the next few weeks. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.